Well, you can take a seat. Good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am thrilled today. We are starting back into our Songs for the Summer series. We have been working through the Psalms every summer for a number of years, and we are this morning jumping into Psalm 95. And yes, we've done 1 through 94 already, and now we're in Psalm 95, so it's pretty exciting. The Psalms are God, uh, the songbook of God's people. God's people have been using these songs for centuries. Before there was even a church, these songs were used. And the tone and the content of these songs fill every facet of the human experience. There are songs for sadness. There are songs for lament. There are songs for anger. There are songs for disappointment. There are songs for worship and exaltation. And each of them give words to our voices so we can appropriately and fittingly direct them to God. So because of that, I am thrilled that we get to rehearse a few more this summer. And my prayer is that you will have additional words you can put in your back pocket so that when you come up against the next hurdle in life, you will have words to express yourself to God. So this morning, we are in Psalm 95. So if you can pull your Bible out and turn there, we will get started. I would love for you to have a Bible on your lap, even if, especially if it's physical. I would love for you to know in your mind, oh, Psalm 95 sits here on the page. I know where that is. So you can someday go find it again. So Psalm 95. This morning is not a risk-free morning. Perhaps you've walked through the door and you are familiar with this place, you're familiar with this building and the surroundings and the portions of the service and how everything goes and you are used to this, so you think this is, rote, this is routine, just another Sunday morning, but this is not a risk-free morning. Maybe this is your first time and someone invited you and you thought, yeah, I can come to your gathering, it may be a little weird, but it'll be innocuous, no big deal. But this is not a risk-free morning. Since the beginning of our service, when Christian read a passage as a call to worship, we have been put on a trajectory. We have been invited to worship the God of the universe. And our fickle, broken hearts know only two responses. We will worship or we will harden. Praise or callousness, walking in or walking away, those are the options this morning. And if this was an invitation into a fast food restaurant or hanging out at a park, there would be no risk, right? You buy the burger or you don't. You sit at the picnic bench or you don't. Who cares? But this service holds weight. You have been invited to respond to God and how you relate to God is of great importance. It is substantial. And this morning, we will be brought to that point in incisive fashion. We will be told, today is the opportunity to walk toward rest. Today is the time to worship or harden. Today, you walk in or you walk away. That's what this song is about. Let's start at the top of the song. Verse 1 says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, 
and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the height of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The English Standard Version I just read here names this song, Let Us Sing the Songs of Praise. This song would have been used in a regular worship service for Israel thousands of years ago. And that service would be not unlike our morning this morning, in that there was a flow and an order to the service, a time for speaking and a time for singing, a time for responding and a time for silence or confession. And I'm not sure if this particular song fit in a specific worship gathering, like how we sing specific songs for Advent or specific songs for Easter, or if this was just one of the songs one of the music leaders could pull at any given time. But this is what you need to know. This song was chosen so that people like you would sing it and be reminded of what it says. And it starts as a call to praise our transcendent maker, our creator God. The beginning is loud and big and intense. The reasons for praising are big and significant, so the way we praise should be big and significant. Even the beginning, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. That comes across fairly puny in English. Oh come. But in the Hebrew, the original language, the original lyrics for this psalm, this is energetic. It's move it, people. Let's get going. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Of course we must sing. Of course we must praise. This song is a call to exuberance, not apathy. Apathy is antithetical to the form of this song. And you know how this works, right? Some songs require you to really stand up for them. It does not do to sing some of the songs that we sing in a subdued manner. If you're singing... Rejoice, let us lift our hands and raise our voice. That, that doesn't fit, right? You probably should be standing. You probably should be lifting your hands when you're singing about lifting your hands. It says, let us make a joyful noise. We're not calling for quiet chants here. A joyful noise because we sing to the rock of our salvation the firm foundation of the God who saves us, the unmovable mountain that is our rescue. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. This is a call to worship. This is why we read this together at the beginning of the service. This primes you to do what we do here. We will sing and we will worship and we will praise because we have reason to be thankful. Because God is gracious because God is good. He has been good to us. He has given us what we do not deserve. He has made relationship where we had disconnection. He has filled this world with goodness. We already sang about that at the top. There's goodness and beauty in this world and we are recipients of it. I don't know what you were thinking about when you came through, but every Sunday is an opportunity to be reminded that we have reason to be thankful. We have a rock of our salvation. We have reason to lift a joyful noise. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. This is why we sing at church. Because singing is how we raise a joyful noise. This is how we appropriately re respond 
to the call to worship God. And four times the call has been made already in this song. Oh, come, let us make a joyful noise. Let us come, let us make a joyful noise. The imperative is obvious. The invitation is clear. The call is apparent. Our intended action is obvious. Praise, sing, make known to be good and great. But why? Why do we sing? What purpose do we have to sing? And the song tells us, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. For the Lord, Yahweh, the name of the God of Israel, which is translated here into Lord, is a great God. In the simplest terms, God is a big God. The kids are tracking, right? God is a big God. God is not a little God. He is not an insignificant God. He is not a local celebrity God. Not a big fish in a little pond God. Not a regional deity. We respond to this call to sing and come and make a joyful noise because God is great. He is huge and significant and substantial. His magnitude makes obvious that we ought to respond with singing. But how great? That's a fitting question. That's the question this makes me ask. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is so great that He is a great King above all gods. Any other God that you may have worshipped or heard about, they all crack the knee in response to their King. God is their King. That is the greatness that God has. If in the past you had some connection with some other God, some other object that, seemed compel- that you seem compelled to worship, If there is some other that brought you fear if you did not worship it, the God of some other religion, that God is a small God. That God is a wayward servant of the king of the gods. Our God is so much greater that all others are servants to his kingship. They cannot stand toe-to-toe. In fact, any attempt to demand worship from us is an attempt by them to steal the worship of the God King. Above all gods and forces and powers and dominions stands the Lord, Yahweh, our God. That is how great He is. That is why we sing. God is great. God is great because in the unseen, He is great. That is within the spiritual realm. That's what we're talking about. The unseen realm. But what about in what we touch and feel and see, in terms that we understand, how great is that God? How great is God? The song continues into the observable. It says, In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. And here the poetry of song is used to full degree whether the deepest points in the earth or the highest points of the mountains, both are equally God's. There is no uncharted territory of this globe that does not belong to Him. 
We speak of the unknown depths of the sea or the perilous peaks of the mountains. To mankind, they are distant and seemingly unconquerable, but they are in the hands of God. Their vastness does not overwhelm his mind or his power or his control. This song points to the greatest things we can observe so we can understand the greatness of God. This is all comparative, right? His greatness is not superseded by the greatest things you have ever seen. When you see Mount Hood on a clear day from an open vantage point and shudder at its magnificence, God is greater. When you stand next to the Pacific Ocean and ponder its depths, and its width, and its length, realizing its magnitude and your comparatively minuscule size. God is greater. The sea is his, for he made it. He thought it. He pondered its existence and brought it into being. The mighty sea which overwhelms our senses and space and safety in its greatness sat first in the mind of God. In the dry land, formed and made by God, he placed and he oversaw the movements and the carvings of the wind and the rain and the water. His works are indicated in the shapes of the valleys, the contours of the deserts and the boundaries of the canyons. And there's a lot of it, right? A lot of the dry land. Have you ever sat with a child in a map and tried to explain where you live in relation to other things? Where do we live? Right here. No, not, not like just, just, right, just right there, just a little bit. Everything else is bigger. Or maybe you're on your phone and you keep zooming out so they can see there's a lot. There's a lot of dry land. Their eyes widen and cannot even comprehend as you try to explain the scale. And that is what this psalm is doing for us. It's zooming out. We are so much on our phones or only in the smallest realm of experience that we ignore. Maybe it's just a survival mechanism. We know our neighborhoods. We know our street. We don't think about how large everything is. The grandness of the space in which we live. And this song is calling us to ponder the seas and the land and the depths and the mountains because the greatness of God cannot be described with the complexity present in an iPhone. The scale of your house or neighborhood is not significant enough to have you pondering in the right scale the greatness of God. Pick up your eyes and look at the mountain. Drive through eastern Oregon and ponder the expanse. Sit at the Pacific and watch the horizon fall off in the distance when your eyes can see no more. Now you have a scale to ponder God. God is so great, all of these are interacted with by His hands. Does that not shake you? The song says, let's get going. We must sing. We must praise. We need to make some noise because the God to whom we sing is that great. Ours is not a puny God. Why do we sing? Because our God transcends all the categories that for us are the biggest. The sea, the land, the heights, the depths, all these fall within his control and within his creation. 
Even the gods are a subset of his servants. God is not a peer with the pantheon of other religions. He is the king. Why do we sing? Because it is fitting to worship the God who is great. It is appropriate to lend our bodies and our voices and our shouts and our energy to the God that is that great. Why do we sing, for the Lord is a great God? So the song continues singing in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Why do we worship? Because God is also with us. We sing and we worship because God is great and significant, but that is not all. This song reminds us that God is not just transcendent and greater than the greatest things we can ponder. He is also imminent. He is close. He is present. He is with us as shepherd king. It says, oh come, another call. We must do this action. Let us worship and bow down. The language of worship is literally that of kneeling, of having the posture that is befitting servant and king. We worship, we prostrate ourselves. We bless the Lord our God, Yahweh, by even our physical posture. We communicate with our words and our posture that he is good and great and worth worship. Where the worship of God is loud and exuberant when directed toward the greatness of God, this is a little different, right? Even the posture changes to be fitting for a God who is here. Yahweh, the Lord, is our maker. He made the oceans, yes. He made the highest mountains and formed the land, yes. Let's shout about the creator God, but he is also your maker. That is more personal. That is closer. That is intimate. There's no distance there. And why do we worship? For he is our God. He is your God. Notice, this is not simply that he is the creator God. We don't just worship because he is God, though he is and we should. We worship because he is our God. He is connected to us. Not solely because he is the creator of all things, but because he, con- he condescended, lowered himself to be in relationship with us. The song reminds us, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The original singers of this song had mental categories for this type of language. The people of Israel had this as a verbal cue for thinking about the relationship between God and them. God is their God and they are his people. God made promises to be their God and they to be his people. They are in this relationship because he made it so. What grace, what connection, what goodness. And not just any relationship, but shepherd-sheep relationship. A shepherd walks with the sheep and guides them through the wilderness. A shepherd cares for the sheep. A shepherd sustains the sheep. A shepherd protects the sheep. This is an intimate relationship with the maker as sheep of his hand. This is the language of familiarity and connection. And Israel knew this language for their relationship with God. And for the church, 
the language picks up again. If you recall, we were just preaching through Matthew, and the language Jesus uses to describe his posture towards sinners is the language of the shepherd. We have a God who makes a people. We have a God who is to us like a shepherd. We have a God who goes after the stray sinners like so many wandering sheep. Why do we worship? Because God is close to us. Why do we kneel? Because he made us a people. Why do we praise and bless? Because he is our shepherd. Because our maker is with us. Why do we sing? Because God is great. And why do we sing? Because he is close to us. The invitation is before you. The call to worship is clear. The appropriate action is evident. Come, worship, sing, kneel. But this is not a risk-free day. The song takes a turn. At the end of seven, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Today is important. There is an urgency to today because the opportunity to do the fitting thing is here. You can worship, you can sing, and you can move toward God. He will make you a part of his people. You can be in close relationship with your maker. But the alternative is there as well. You can harden your hearts. You can make it unlistening, obstinate, callous, and unmoved. If you hear the voice of God, you always have two responses. You are worshiping or you are hardening. You are moving toward or you are moving away. And that is why there is risk here this morning because there is no other option. There is no sitting on the sidelines not making a decision. To hear God's voice and do nothing is to make yourself unlistening. It is to harden yourself. It is to make a decision. This psalm is clear and cutting because it knows the human heart. It knows us. The human heart will worship or harden. There is no middle way. There is no third way to interact with the great creator God and the shepherd king. That is why the warning is here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Mirabah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, for the original singers, they'd be singing through this song and they would have a visceral understanding of what is being referenced. They know that story. They know the feeling or the shame. The story of Israel, the people of God, is first the story of God making a people. Talking to a man named Abraham saying, I will make you a mighty nation. They will be my people. I will be their God. There will be a connection. And that people lived and grew and eventually was in Egypt and grew all the more and was eventually enslaved. But because God is gracious and good and great, the story of Israel is also the story of rescue. 
God rescued them from the gripping hand of Pharaoh. And you may know that story, right? The ten plagues. God defeated the oppressors not with weapons, but with creation itself. God is a great God, and he led the people out of Egypt and walked them through the Negev, the wilderness, and on the way to the promised land of Canaan. He provided for them an escape through the sea. He squashed the enemies with the sea itself. He gave them food and protection. He gave them guidance and goodness. He proved to be great and a shepherd time and time and time and time again. Until they became thirsty. They camped at a place called Rephidim and they quarreled and they complained. They wanted water and demanded it from Moses, their human leader in the wilderness. They grumbled and they put God to the test, saying things like, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And their big question, their big question was, is the Lord among us or not? And two things happened there. God provided water out of a rock. He was the shepherd he always was. And secondly, the place was named Mirabah and Massa, quarreling and testing, forever marked with the shame of their actions. The original singers of the song didn't need to be reminded of this story. As they sang, they hit those words and they felt it in their bones. Like perhaps maybe we react when we hear the place Gettysburg. We know our history. We know brother killed brother on that battlefield, and it's marker, it is a marker of a bloody stain on our history, the Civil War. Israel sings this song and vocalizes Mirabah and Massa, and they know what happened there. They know the testing and the quarreling. They know the awful question that was posed of God and the shameful naming of a shameful place. They know their fathers took the path to hardening. Though they had seen the Lord act as shepherd over and over and over again, though they had seen the confirmation of his greatness over and over and over again, still they hardened and quarreled and tested. Is the Lord among us or not? That is where their fathers did the test. And see here in verse 9 the dramatic shift. This whole song has been, let us, he is our God, hear his voice, and now God makes a direct connection. The song says, when your fathers put me to the test. God is talking to us now in this song. Do you hear him? And God confirms, they had seen my work and yet still they put me to the test. They questioned my greatness. They still questioned my connection with them. They still questioned whether they were my people and I was their God. And friends, we may not have the visceral reaction to Meribah and Massa the way they do, but I know within this room we are full of stories of God being great and God proving to be close. And if we do not give ourselves reason to remember, we will forget. And the next time we suffer, the next time we are thirsty, the next time life hits you across the face, the opportunity to harden your heart is close at hand. 
If we do not have songs like this to remind us, the tempting question is at hand to help us harden. Is the Lord among us or not? That is the benefit to us that this gathering gives every Sunday. We are given reason to remember who God is and what he has done. That is why we gather in life groups because we can't do this by ourselves. We need to live life together and remind each other who God is and what he has done. That's why in my life group, I list out the prayer requests in a list so I can check them off as they are answered, but the record there remains. So when we are tempted to ask, is the Lord among us or not? We can go back and be reminded of his works that we have seen. Yes, he answered us. Yes, he helped us. Yes, he cared for us. The opportunity is here. God has spoken. Do you worship or do you harden? What are the ramifications of hardening? What is the risk? The song makes it clear. In verse 10, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who will go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. For 40 years, God loathed. For 40 years, they were a hardened people and wandered in the wilderness as a consequence of their hardness. And loathed here is a fitting word. You loathe something that is disgusting. One should loathe to take out the trash to a hot pile of maggot-infested garbage. It's disgusting. It's loathsome. It's revolting. God is not describing here a juvenile response when he did not get his way. It is fitting and right for him to loathe, to be disgusted by the actions of a people who respond in such a way after seeing all that he had done. It is disgusting to think that a people who had been formed by God, rescued in a dramatic fashion, protected through the sea, fed and sustained through the wilderness, supported and secured through attacks and danger, it is disgusting to think they would turn and say, is the Lord among us or not? That's a disgusting response. It is loathsome to see the greatness of God and the closeness of God and the power and compassion of God, the majesty and the care of God, and then to go astray and question whether he is even around. To allow their hearts to go astray. To allow their hearts to stagger on as one influenced by strong drink. It is right to be disgusted by a staggering heart. Especially when that heart has heard all that it has heard when those eyes have seen all that they have seen. It is repulsive to see someone act as though God was not creator and as though the Lord is not a shepherd, especially when that person has experienced the benefits of the shepherd and gained from the proximity to his people. They did not know the ways of God, but instead allowed themselves to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a liar a stopper of ears, a clouder of your eyes, a hardener of your heart. A sinful heart is a staggering heart. A sinful heart is inviting of consequences. 
That is why the song says, Therefore God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A fitting and lamentable response to their hardening, to their sin. The consequence was the loss of rest. But what is that rest? This initial rest was their destination. The promised land, Canaan, a home to settle, a place to belong, a place to set up families and peace and flourishing away from the oppression of Egypt through the inhospitable wilderness to the land of rest. But this generation of testing and quarreling did not enter that rest. They wandered in the wilderness rather than enter the rest because their hearts were hard toward their creator God and their shepherd king. There is urgency to this song. We started exuberant and loud. God is great, sing. God is close, worship. And we pivot and end with God making an appeal to you directly. Do not harden your hearts as you hear his voice. Those in the past have hardened and lost interest into rest. Today, don't do the same thing. And the question should be for you, is the rest still open? Does anyone get it? The story of Israel in the wilderness transitions from Moses to Joshua and him taking them into the land of Canaan. They finally got to the promised land, but was that the rest? But was that in it? Was that it? Did anyone get the rest? Can I get it? Can you get it? Is there still the great Sabbath to be had? Luckily for us, a writer in the New Testament decided to write a sermon on this very psalm. In Hebrews 4, the psalm is further preached this way. The preacher in Hebrews says, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This song, Psalm 95, was written and sung well after the arrival of Israel to the land. And yet the song says today, Joshua did not give them rest or God wouldn't be speaking this way to you right now. Today is the day to hear his voice and respond because the rest is still to be had. The great Sabbath is available. And we all want rest, don't we? Israel needed rescue and a place to call home, a place to have peace and rest from work and striving and longing. They longed for rest, and we all long for rest because we live in a place full of striving, toiling, working, and movement. We know deep in our bones that this world is not as it should be. There is not rest here because things are not yet right. There is need for rescue and protection and provision. The striving is constant. We need to keep working just to keep the brokenness at bay. 
And the promise of a Sabbath rest is a promise of an eventual great restoration. The great exhale of shalom, of all as it should be, of the twisted mended and the broken repaired, of effort unhindered by curses and toiling no longer necessary, of a home and peace and provision. Israel longed for a land they should call home, and we need a new land to call home as well. We long for a new heaven and new earth where we can dwell with Jesus, the creator God and the shepherd king with our feet in the dirt and our bodies interacting in the world no longer twisted by sin. Everything shall be as it should be. Our longing for rest fulfilled. Our striving for remedy stilled. Our desiring for connection to our king unthwarted by our own staggering hearts. No more brokenness, no more danger, no more shame, no more doubts. Doesn't that sound like rest? Don't you want that rest? There is future full rest coming and there is rest for the taking now. It is inherent in the words of this song and it is the work of Jesus that gives us rest. Because he did the work, you can rest. Enter the rest brought about because the God of this psalm did the work. Jesus, the creator God, humbled himself to be God with us as the shepherd king so that he could secure for us the rest for our souls and the rest for all creation. Jesus, the God who is great and the God who is here, did the work so that we can enter his rest. So let us strive to enter that rest. The entrance into the rest is available because Jesus did the work. So now you have heard. So listen and enter in. Do not harden, but take the call of the preacher from Hebrews. He says it this way. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, in this moment, you can experience the rest of having someone else do the work for you. And your hope can be secured to a coming rest that is worth waiting for. Today is the opportunity to walk toward rest. God has spoken. Worship or harden. Walk away or walk toward God is the great creator God and he is the close shepherd king and because of that we have reason to sing. Because of that we have reason to respond. And this morning, in particular, we have the opportunity and reason to remember the work of Jesus, the shepherd king, what he did for us. Jesus is so compassionate and gracious, he gave his life to secure relationship and rest for us and was raised again to confirm his work. Let's pray. Lord, we have all been drawn through this psalm and have all heard your words and now have the opportunity to worship you. Give us all soft hearts. Melt those who have hardened and give them a disgust of their own wayward response to you. 
Let today be a day of worship and entering into rest. Allow us to experience the work of Jesus and feel the assurance of rest now and the rest to come. Tune our minds and hearts and actions as we sing and take communion. Amen.